0: Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover The Stand, Book 1, Chapters 16-25. to Let's start the show! As the superflu continues its progress across the country, we check
1: in with Franny, Stu, Larry, and Nick. We say goodbye to Starkey, as he is fired from his work at Project Blue and doesn't take it very well. We are also introduced to Lloyd Henried, who seems like a very bad man, and Randall Flagg, who is definitely a very, very
2: bad man.
1: I think we found our antagonist for this book, Jay.
2: Who, Lloyd? Lloyd, yes. And yeah. potentially Randall Flagg. Yeah. I was thinking it might it might have been Starkey, but. Yeah, <laughs> well, he's done for, so. We
1: are going to talk about Randall Flagg here shortly, but let's talk a little bit about something that you noticed first with the main characters that we've been introduced to so far and how this plague is affecting them
0: i kind of started uh, thinking about this as like trend lines in people's lives and how the various characters that we've gotten to know so far each of their lives is is on a different track for example nick andros his life seems to be on an upswing
2: mm.
0: i mean when we first meet him he's getting <laughs> beaten to a pulp that's kind of a low point for anybody but <laughs> In the process of recovering from that beating, he meets some really kind, supportive people in this town that he never planned to spend more than a day or two in. And it seems like he's getting opportunities to actually maybe settle down a little bit, maybe start a more, just have more meaningful connections and a longer term stay in this place, right? With with people who care about him and things like that. And then there are other characters who like Lloyd Henry or Franny Goldsmith who are facing some sort of struggle. Like in you could say that their lives are on a downswing. Things were going okay for them and now just before the, the plague hit, they reached a low point in their lives. Mm. So like trouble is ahead. Like for example, Lloyd is looking at life in prison slash possibly the death penalty. Yeah. Like he's in jail right now, about to go to trial to try to get acquitted for murder. And then there's one character in particular, Stu Redman is sort of like status quo. Part of his character thus far is that his life has kind of hit a, a plateau. Yeah. And he's been doing the same thing day after day for a while. And it looks like that would just keep on keeping on, except that now the world has become infected with Captain Tripp's. I was just sort of thinking about how all these characters that we've come to know, some of their lives are sloping up, some of them are sloping down, and some of them, like Stu, is just kind of straight across. Yeah. And how, if you think of this like a graph, where they all intersect is like where the the flu hit. Yeah. And now, instead of those lines continuing in the direction that they were, they all drop down to zero, and now everybody's life is reset. And this is the whatever's coming next is going to be an exploration as to like after like this flu, as bad as it is, is a big reset button. Yeah, I think that that's a good point.
1: And because of the way that King has written this book and the way the flu is spreading, it's not like it's hitting all of them at once. So Mm. Stu's been in this new reality for much longer because of he was at the, the spot where patient zero was. His line hit that reset button a little bit earlier, and same with Nick's, whereas we have not seen the flu really hit bad Larry and Lloyd's story yet. There are sprinklings of the idea of the plague hitting. Yeah. We hear people sneezing, we see people coughing, somebody's got the sniffles, but not to the disastrous piece as Nick is, where... It's like last man on earth in, in Chile, yeah. Arkansas. Like he goes outside and it's gone. Everybody's gone. The military that were watching the roads on the way out, they're gone. There's people shot dead in a ditch. Um, he has to break into buildings. He can't get things on the radio and TV. So like that trend line, this is definitely a reset button. It's just hitting people at different times. And as you said, it seems like it's going to affect their progression in their life. Immensely. So Lloyd is someone we want to talk a little bit about because he is introduced new in this section. And as you mentioned, his trend line has gone from, hey, I was in prison. He gets out of prison and then immediately goes on a (laughs) natural born killers type killing spree across a tri state area. And he thinks he's hot shit and then is caught. And something that I did not remember in all my times reading this book is King has made up this fanciful scenario in which the Supreme Court has decided that sitting on death row is cruel and unusual punishment. So they've changed the law to allow this sort of immediate justice where Lloyd is arrested and his his court-appointed lawyer tells him, you're going to go on trial in the next two weeks and you're going to be sentenced to death fairly quickly if I can't get you off and you might be looking at the death penalty by
0: the end of the month. And happy 4th of July to you. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's crazy. Like in the real world, people on death row, like they tend to be there for years and years and years. If if you were Lloyd in the real world, like the rest of your life would be pretty fairly limited in terms of like you're going to be on death row. He'd have the Stu Redman path, right? It'd be he'd be plateaued for a long time there. But in he in the book, he's facing like immediate execution, basically, like right. And so his whole tune changes pretty quickly.
1: It's funny because I remember the killing spree fairly well uh, with his buddy Poke, who pokerizes people. Mm. But that whole piece with his his lawyer, I did not remember that at all. And it really throws Lloyd for a loop um, as he realizes that his trend line, as you've discussed, is on the downward slope really quick, like it's a crash, crash and burn. So. Mm -hmm. he is a bad man but he's an interesting character nonetheless i found and it could be because i'm remembering that i believe he was played by miguel ferrer in the original miniseries and as we've talked about before i have a soft spot for miguel ferrer i don't want to say i sympathize with lloyd but i dig his story and his
0: appearance so far has been interesting to me yeah anything that is connected to Miguel Ferrer is going to be that much better. So I think that the character of Lloyd is much more interesting than his partner in crime. Like the the guy poke, he just, he just almost seemed comical and, and outrageous, but I didn't really care that much about him one way or the other. And I, I, I didn't remember the exact details of their escapades and I was expecting Lloyd to kill him at some point like Mm. to just turn on him or accidentally kill him or something. Like I remember Lloyd being in the story beyond this poke guy. So I'm like, how do they part ways? Do they, you know, split up, go to different forks in the road. One of them kill the other. Yeah. I I guess the way that it, it turned out was, was pretty great. And I'm glad that, that, that character was kind of like his story ended though. Cause yeah. Lloyd's a much more interesting one to stick around with.
1: Yeah, so we'll see where this leads him because again, it doesn't look very good for Lloyd, and we know the flu's coming. Um, some of the guards that are around him who are treating him badly or have threatened to treat him badly have one tooth. Exactly
0: one tooth. That that is a seriously badass threat to somebody. Yeah. You're gonna lose one tooth for that. <laughs> what <laughs> Uh, It's ridiculous, but it carries so much weight because it's so specific. It's not like somebody's going to knock some of your teeth out. It's exactly one. (laughs) The penalty is
1: one, two. More to come on Lloyd's teeth later on in this episode. Yes, indeed. That's a teaser for you. So the other character that I think is not a spoiler to say is I will be a main character in this book. Is introduced in his own chapter, and that's Randall Flagg. Yes, the Dark Man. Finally, so we've talked about Randall Flag, in the Eyes of the Dragon, and we've talked about him on our one of our bonus episodes on Patreon about the poem "The Dark Man." Mm-hmm. But here he is in his full glory in the stand. His his first, I think, introduction to the American people was via this book.
0: Uh, pretty sure that that's that's true. We also know that he's the same character in The Dark Tower. Yep. That we know as Walter and the good man and various other RF initial personas. So we know that he's an important part of the Dark Tower story and we have a feeling that he's going to be an important part of this book too. You just hinted at the poem, The Dark Man that that we covered in a Patreon bonus episode. I think that this introduction of Flag really shows King's growth as a writer, mm-hmm. this intro feels like a really powerful echo of that poem, but it is so much better yes, than the poem. it is. And not just because it has a thousand more words, it's, it's just so much better. The, the character that we meet here is more menacing and powerful and also strangely appealing. He has a magnetism. Yeah. Is maybe the better way of putting it than the character
2: in the Dark Man pole. A charisma. Yes.
1: The chapter where he's introduced is just so much more poetic despite it being prose. The way that King sort of intertwines lines about the type of man he is, it just brings him to the forefront the idea that He's a trickster who plays both sides. His jean jacket is just full of pamphlets which contradict each other. He's just got the right thing for the right time and the description of how he wanders the roads. its just It takes that Dark Man poem, which you could tell was written by a kid, and had the glimmerings of an idea and just flushes it out into something that's so good and so intriguing that you want to learn more about this character and find out what he is going to do. King hints at it enough to know that this guy is special. So up until this point I think we could say that this novel while maybe an exaggeration is not too far off from the real world. The characters Mm. are living normal day-to-day lives. There's nothing supernatural yet. You know, this isn't Salem's Lot with vampires or Carrie with a girl with telekinetic powers or the shining with ghosts in a haunted house. This has been a fairly straightforward tale of a pandemic that's wiping out life. And then we get this character who it's hinted at has some type of magic and is floating and his origin is very vague,
0: even to him, especially to him even. And it just really grabs the reader, I think. Yeah. This is where the, the, the the narrative takes a turn. That goes from that enhanced realism to fantasy, right? And and that either works for you and makes you sink your teeth in all the more deeply, or you're like, what is this nonsense? I thought this was a plague story. Right. It's sort of like how George R. R. Martin does with the first book of Game of Thrones. There isn't a hint of the supernatural in that, and then suddenly, at the end, there are dragons. Yeah now there's and witchcraft and like it all just kind of comes to the the fore and you're like oh that's what this actually is yeah and i think it works really well there and i think it works really well here the stand would not be the success of it has been all these years i think if it weren't for this element of the story mm-hmm. there's one thing that That I found really interesting, like, I kind of feel like at this point in time, we as readers, we as the audience, sort of know who King wants Flag to be, that he is this supernatural thing. Maybe he's not even a man. Maybe he's something that is not human. But certainly a creature with magical powers, an exceedingly long life is beholden to almost nothing except his own whims mm. and here he's introduced as a person who has a vague past there's a line that 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 made me think of this idea that he certainly could not remember much that had happened bef- to him before that except that he came originally from Nebraska and he had once attended high school classes with a red-haired bandy-legged boy named Charles Starkweather to me if that is literally true about flag right it kind of disconnects flag from the dark tower he's just a regular dude who something about the confluence of events here with the plague he now has magical powers yeah and he just accepts them full stop like okay i got magic now (laughs) right right this never happened before i know that the order of things in real life where King wrote this character in this book before maybe deciding that it had anything to do with the Dark Tower. Sure. But I feel this sort of paints King into a corner a little bit to have to retcon some stuff in other other works. Yeah. However, maybe Flag, the character, kind of forgets who and what he is for a time. Like he goes into like stasis, right? And he does this before he's ready to emerge as the remarkable butterfly that he truly is right like and that only happens at the right time in the eyes of the dragon he comes back every couple hundred years when it's just the right time to cause the most mayhem right he shows up in and out of time in the dark tower stories when it's just the right time to cause the most mischief and here he shows up during the '60s, during you know the civil rights stuff and the Vietnam protests and things like that, and he he causes mayhem. And then he just sort of forgets who he was. And now there's a plague that's killing everybody in the world. Guess what? It's time. It's butterfly time again. Yep. Maybe King's already retconning who he is, or he's in the book itself, and therefore it seems even sleeker. Either way, I dig it big time so and there's this really subtle
1: way that king hints at what's to come so the chapter right before randall flag is introduced is one of the chapters with starkey and starkey reminisces about a book of poetry he gets from his daughter by Yeats, except he pronounce it Yeats, mm-hmm. and he figures his daughter gave it to him because she knew he wouldn't read it. And just because he's a stubborn son of a bitch, she decides I'm going to read it just to prove her wrong. Uh-huh. And of course he comes across Yeats's most famous poem. And he says one of the lines that stuck with him and one of the lines he remembers is what rough beast it's hour come round at last slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. And the fact that that line is said right before flag appears and is on a new mission where he's heading somewhere. We don't know where. He's slouching somewhere. He's definitely slouching somewhere and he's about ready to be born. I think it's just a nice little segue that King puts in there from a literary illusion standpoint and, and just points to the importance of flag here.
0: I mean, it's classic movie storytelling technique, right? Like you have two characters in one scene and they're like, who could the mystery person be? And then it cuts to somebody else in another scene and it's like, it's telling you that's the person. The other two characters don't necessarily know that, but now we, the audience, do. And it's like, yeah, what creature is is uh, you know, about to be born? And and Flag uses those words, the 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 idea of birth. And and he, he does that little levitation thing for a minute and he says, Nope, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. He's waiting to be born, just like in the Yates poem. Good stuff. I'm guessing we're going to have
1: lots more to talk about with Flagg, and I'm really looking forward to it. As am I. So our next topic, Jay, Randall Flagg could be considered a, uh, a pop culture hero, I think. He's fairly well known. Yeah. We thought we'd talk a little bit about some pop culture lenses, and this is something that King is known for. And one of the things that I noticed is that in early King works, we talked about this with Salem's line in particular, they have a very soap opera-y feel to them. Mm-hmm. You know, he famously described Salem's Lot as Peyton Place with vampires, and his early works just had this sort of melodramatic feel to them in, in a lot of cases, where things are over the top. And I wonder if some of that is being a teacher, you get three months off in the summer and you could sit around and watch TV. And back when we were younger, there were three hours straight of soap operas you could watch during the day and it was all that was on. And I wonder if King partook of that. But Franny's story in particular in these first few sections is very much like a soap opera. And even she realizes that. Yeah, that's the best part. Franny is very introspective and very smart, more so than many other characters that we meet. Like She's able to comment on her life and realizes what's happening. I think part of that is because what's happening in her life is very introspective. There's not a lot of action, like Nick's getting beat up and people are dying and Larry's having cocaine parties and becoming a rock star and sleeping around. But Franny's life is very interior at the moment. She's pregnant and she's worried about what that means to her and what that's going to mean for her life. And she's breaking up with somebody, but there's not a lot of action. So we spend so much time in her head and it's very soap opera. Like you could almost hear the melodramatic music playing over her, her inner thoughts. And she realizes this and King realizes this through his pop culture lens that we've talked about where and she says, baby, the world is a daytime drama. We love our lives. And so we look for the guiding light as we search for tomorrow.
2: <laughs>
1: if you're not of a certain age, you might not realize that King's referenced three different soap opera titles in that phrase. And just, it's so soap opera-like, it's just sort of beating you over the head. And he pulls it off well. Like, I'm not bored by this. I, I don't think it's it's
0: too much to ask, and I dig it. No, it's, it's wonderful fun. I, I mean, it's... That that's what's so great about it. The only thing Franny doesn't do is, you know, worry about her evil twin showing up to take over her life, <laughs> right. right? But uh, she even like sits at
1: the window and looks outside as things are happening. And the scene early on in the book when her poet boyfriend is sitting at the docks looking out at the ocean and she's observing him, its just crazy. Yeah. But as I continue to read this section, I realize that that's not the only sort of pop culture lens that we talk about. Lloyd, who we talked about earlier, he is almost like a Wile E. Coyote character in this section, and he talks about what his life is like through cartoons and gangster movies. Mm-hmm. Part of this is maybe because it doesn't seem like Lloyd's gone through a lot of school, and he's sort of a simple man. But you know, he pictures himself and Poke as as gangsters on the run in a in a Jimmy Cagney movie, and he's running around the desert like Wile E. Coyote after the Roadrunner. and He's getting into these weird
0: situations. And so it's very much cartoony and gangster movie in that way. It's almost like King is giving each of these characters a particular way of expressing themselves or like self-identifying. Franny thinks of herself as a character in a soap opera and Lloyd thinks of himself as a cartoon character. Yeah. And what's really interesting is that one of the other main characters who we've spent some time with in this section of the book is Nick. And Nick is interesting because he's kind of an outsider. He's an outsider from other people because he is deaf and mute. But because of that handicap, he also doesn't have the same connection to pop culture. Mm. So it's almost like he has no pop culture lens at all. Yeah. And in some ways that works to his advantage. He is able to see things that are different or, or wrong in like a newscast, he picks up on the, the, the subtleties that somebody else who can hear, I guess, wouldn't notice. Yeah. And while King is almost bashing us over the head with the pop culture references for characters like Franny and Lloyd, Nick's absence of them almost becomes like its own kind of pop culture lens because it's completely absent The pop culture. It's like it it's a lens of that's like perfectly clear. Yep.
1: He's able to get straight to the signal. So he when people are starting to die off and he realizes I need to put on the news to find out what's happening. Mm -hmm. And because he can only read lips, he notices they're not cutting away to other film like other man on the spot camera angles because none of that exists anymore, right? It's just a news reader on TV. And so he finds that odd. Even the weather report, they don't have any of the computer slides or the imagery that they normally have, it's just one guy reading and he's like, that's odd and people might not have noticed it. And then he also notices that the news reader is constantly looking off to the side of the studio as if somebody's there making sure he says what he is supposed to say. Mm-hmm. And all of that is because he's sort of outside of this. He's aware of it. He just doesn't participate like somebody else would. And when I thought about it through Lloyd, Nick watching cartoons would be odd because it would be all visual for him. Yeah there'd be no sound. He, he couldn't hear Bugs Bunny say something. He couldn't see Elmer because you can't read lips of a cartoon. So it's all visual. And so that's why it made that sort of distinct contrast for me between Lloyd seeing his life through that way. And Nick totally being outside of that and it doing him well, realizing there's something big going on beyond what's just
0: happening here in town. And I don't know what to do about it. Yeah. It, it lets him read between the lines where, I think just about any other character in the book might not have picked up on, on those cues. Right. One thing that kind of caught me, Nick watching TV because he's deaf, my first assumption was that he would put on like the closed captions. <laughs> and then I remembered when King wrote this book, there really wasn't a lot in terms of closed caption support for TV. No. And if, if anything at all. And right. then even updating it to 1990, I still think it was pretty sparse yeah so it really was nick depending on his ability to read lips via the the camera lens of the t, you know the tv cameras right. and seeing the newscaster's face as he or she spoke so if somebody spoke off screen or they did one of those like let's cut to the b-roll of the waves crashing against the shore during the hurricane he will not be aware of that voiceover um, yeah. at all So yeah, it completely changes his connection to what he gets out of a TV show. I like how King tries to mimic that experience
1: in the narration Mm. where somebody will be talking to him and then Nick will look away or that person will turn their back and all of a sudden it's cut. Like, we don't know what the rest of that line is because Nick can't experience, so we as the reader aren't going to
0: experience it either. Yep.
1: Again, this book... We read, what, nine or ten chapters this go around, and there's just lots of bouncing around, so we're obviously not going to be able to cover every single piece of plot that happens in this just because of the the way that the book is structured, but we want to hit on what we thought were some of the main themes, and of course, we always want to talk about our Dark Tower thinnies, which I think are next.
0: Sean, why don't you kick us off with our Dark Tower thinnies? Jake. I think Randall Flagg is a Dark Tower Thinny. <laughs> a little
1: bit? <laughs> yeah. Like <laughs> all, all this stuff is fairly obvious that, that there's a Dark Tower Thinny going on here. And just, I thought I'd call that out. I noticed it.
0: It was very astute of you. <laughs> a Dark Tower Thinny I wanted to call out was the detailed description of Randall Flagg's boots. Mm. Really reminded me a lot of King's description of Roland's boots. Flag's boots in this book and Roland's boots throughout the Dark Tower are, you know, they have this words like sprung and broken in in just the right ways and that they seem like that they could last forever. And all this stuff just, it reminded, it made me think like they bought their boots at the same bootmaker, and then they both proceeded to go on their different journeys, right. which are quite long. And often on foot. So it's it just felt like a while not a connection in some of our in the same way as some of our other thinnies have been, I think, narratively and, and descriptively. These are two pairs of boots that have a lot in common. You had mentioned earlier that this
1: Randall flag, there are enough hints that maybe this isn't the same flag that was in the Dark Tower. That flag seemed more self-aware and consistent, and this flag seems to be born out of nothing. And so perhaps that's one way of looking at it, but one way that this flag is connected to another book is the RF that Carol Gerber encounters in Mm -hmm. Parts in Atlantis. She is involved with a group of radicals who are going to conduct a little bit of terrorism on a university campus. And there's an RF who's involved in some way. I can't remember his exact name, but he sort of floats out in the middle of the night and isn't caught up with everybody else in the explosion that Carol Gerber supposedly dies in. And that is almost referenced identically in the description of flag that he's involved in these types of protests and he just sort of flits in and out and no one can quite remember who he is and what he was, but they can sort of remember he was there and had something to do with it, but then he moves along and it seemed a very close connection to that.
0: Yeah, I agree. The flag in in this description and the flag that Carol describes who taught her to be dim yeah it seems like the very same troublemaker this is that person who pokes the hornets' nest and runs away before the, the the hornets fly out right and then probably goes on the other
1: side too right so like Carol Gerber's group is a bunch of anti-war activists and you can get the sense that the next week this Randall flag would be marching with uh, the Rolling Thunder group going for pro-war. Demonstrations on the other side, because that's what he's got in this other pocket of his jean jacket,
0: yeah, the last dark tower thingy that I had was um there was a moment when Nick is pulled up in the uh, sheriff's office, he decides to dig out the sheriff's spare gun and strap it on the way that it, it seems to just like hang around his waist and and hang low, it just made me picture how Roland wears his guns and So it's like, ah, look at that. Nick straps on a gun and he's in gunslinger mode now. This is cool. Good stuff. Jay, we got another great review on
1: iTunes that I wanted to share with us. Awesome. This is from Sarah M's Creepin. And she says, Salem's Lot is my favorite King book, and I even love both miniseries. So I was thrilled to find your podcast. I spent the weekend listening to all 10 exclamation point of your Salem's lot shows and I haven't enjoyed myself that much in a while. Really great analysis with a fun conversational style. Thanks for putting this together. P.S. As a New Yorker, that New York New Jersey quote made me literally snort laugh. So thanks for that too. Well Sarah, thank you. That's a fantastic review and makes us happy that as we continue to explore King's works that people are staying tuned for non Dark Tower books as well. So thanks.
0: Sarah thank you that this is a really great review it's uh brightened up my whole week i'm really thrilled that you liked the salem's lot coverage that we did i i hope you'll go back and listen to some of our older episodes and i am especially thrilled that you liked the uh new york new jersey joke uh that i made keep on listening and we'll we'll keep on entertaining so Sean, let's get into the section where we talk about the things in the story that have really grossed us out. It's time for yucking it up.
1: Jay, pretty much the whole chapter with Starkey when he decides that his job's over and he's going to move on with his life, and in doing so, he decides to go straight into the lab where the super flu was created. The lab that he's been monitoring from a control room with little TV showing a poor man's face dead in the soup and another guy dead in a corner and the air just circulating. And he goes down there. There's so much gross things in that section. Uh (laughs) The naked couple who have torn off all their clothes, made love, and then committed a murder-suicide. The guy who's... Faces in the soup but that Starkey decides, hey, I'm not going to let him be in the soup for all eternity. I'm going to wipe off his face and not let his face be in the soup. It's still pretty gross because he's got soup all over his face. <laughs> all of that was just a little much for me.
0: I called out two things that really grossed me out. And and one of them was in that same Starkey scene. Uh, it's the one where he finds the person with the sign around his neck. Mm-hmm. And what really got to me was Starkey puts his fingers under the guy's chin and pushes his head back so he could read the sign. And when he did, his eyeballs fell back in his head with a meaty little thud. (laughs) (laughs) So the meaty little thud thing really got to me. And of course, the the sign read, now you know it works. Any questions? (laughs) Yeah. Which felt really 80s to me. It does. Any questions? It's a little little like church lady. Yeah. Ugh. It's not stated anywhere. Like Starkey doesn't say why he does this. To me, or my interpretation is Starkey has been watching all of these people be dead. And in all of these various states of disarray and, and, and bed scenes or whatever, like the face in the soup. And he couldn't do anything about it. Right. They're in a place that is just ground zero for the the super flu. You can't send somebody in in a safety suit and say, "Can you take this guy and fix him or whatever?" You know. So when he decides it's time to kill himself, before I do that, I am going to set this right. You know, like I'm going to turn off the the this thing and I'm going to s- fix that thing. And but he does like kind of a half ass job. <laughs> Like the centrifuge burned itself out already. So he didn't have to turn that off. But the guy, the soup in the face, like he was really, that, that really got to him. Right. And so I was expecting him to just very gently, like wash the guy's face off, like wipe it completely clean or something. But instead he just kind of like pulls his face out of the soup (laughs) and just goes, all right, I'll throw my handkerchief on you. Like, that's really not a lot better. No. But anyway. And, and his replacement even says as much, right?
1: So we, yeah. we cut back. And part of it is that they're pretty much going to be there for all eternity and the cameras will continue to run for who knows how long until the power goes out. Mm-hmm. And the poor guy who takes over for Stark, he's like, uh, it might have been better if the guy's face
0: was in a suit. <laughs> yeah. The other yucking it up thing that I wanted to talk about was this is another person who died in a kind of. Out of reach place, he was in one of the jail cells under Nick's care. When Nick came back and found that he was dead, he, he was on the floor amid a clutter of melting ice and wet towels, and he had clawed at his neck as if he had been resisting an invisible strangler. And the tips of his fingers were bloody, and flies were lighting on him and buzzing off. His neck was as black and swollen as an inner tube. Some heedless child had pumped up to the point of bursting. That is like, oh, yeah. and King is so vivid in this description. And then when you start to think about how every single person who dies of Captain Trips probably looks like this, how horrific uh-huh. the surroundings are. If you're Stu and you're walking down the street and you see everybody else is dead with this, yep, oh, that's that's like over and over again. This the inner tube and the, the clawed out oh it's yeah definitely a a, definitely a yuck for this yucking it up
1: yeah and nick has to deal with a lot of this too Mm -hmm. this is the second man he's dead and he has to like pull the big man's body down and he tries to put him in the cellar and of the of the police station and the things that he encounters in this town and we can already see like the dogs are starting to go a little wild Mm -hmm. and getting i think the dog or dogs are getting sick too it's just yeah He deals with a lot of gross stuff. Good job, King, grossing us out yet again. Yep. All right, well, this is the part of the show where we remind you that you can support the show and get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes, by becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower to learn more. Jay, we've done a number of Stand-related bonus episodes recently. We have. For continuing coverage,
0: be sure to get over there. Sean, is it time for fun stuff? I think it is. Yes, I love fun stuff. The first fun stuff thing I wanted to talk about is King makes direct reference to the USSR. Mm. And, or, or why it caught my eye is that when he wrote this book the first time in 1978, okay, so fine. The USSR was a thing, had been a thing for quite a long time, would continue to be for quite a while longer. <laughs> but by the time he re edited this edition in 1990, the ussr had less than a year to exist yeah now, of course king couldn't have known that but it's interesting that like this thing that's referenced here as this other world power that you know is the other side of the cold war that we were all living through that king was living through when he was you know writing this book would in less
2: than a year after this book came out on the market would actually go away yeah They sort of hint at the fact that some of
1: Starkey's men in the military and the CIA are going to disperse Captain Tripps in different places around the world. Like There's still this Cold War attitude where we want to make sure that they don't think that we were attacking them or that we were attacking us, and I think that that was the the piece that they're basically spreading this around the, the whole world so that everybody gets it and no one's going to be to blame for it. So there's still that cold war mentality there. Yeah. I mentioned this earlier, but the Yeats Yates mix up that Starkey has is always sort of stuck with me. Um, I think because it's played up in the, in the miniseries as well. It's just a nice little touch by King because I could see where somebody who's not familiar with him would make that mistake of how to pronounce his name based on how it's written. And as somebody whose name is spelled S E A N and, I get a lot of scene and not Sean's. I, I I totally appreciated it. (laughs) Us us Irish don't know how to use the vowels correctly. Yeah. It's that old Gaelic
0: influence, right? Yeah, I hinted at this a little while ago, but the death of the centrifuge in the bio lab uh, under Starkey's supervision really tickled me. And I think it's because Starkey was so obsessed with the fact that the centrifuge was just, Running and running and running. So when it finally died, it was like a truly happy moment for him. Yes. And, and I loved how King describes it. He, he says that at 1940 hours last night, the centrifuge began to emit tendrils of smoke. At 1995 hours, the sound pickups in the lab transmitted a wonga 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 sound. And then that eventually deepened into a fuller, richer, and more satisfying ronk, ronk, ronk. (laughs) And then at 2107 hours, the centrifuge had ronked its last ronk and slowly (laughs) came to rest. I love that. Like the wonga, wonga, ronk, ronk stuff. I mean, it's just great. And it gives you so much. By the time we got to the end of this chapter of Starkey, I was sad that he was like, Exiting the story. Right. I really started to dig him as a character because he's presented as this, you know, quintessential military type, the kind who would never read Yates, the kind who wouldn't think Wonga Wonga and and Ronk Ronk, right? But here he is quoting Yates and thinking Wonga Wonga. So, like, and he's in some ways one of the most powerful people in the world at the time of this crisis, And so I'm like, oh, I wish I wish he could have been around at
1: least a little longer. So I just wanted to point out King's usually fairly straightforward with names. You know, Stu Redmond, Franny Goldsmith, like these are fairly normal names you come across. But one of Franny Goldsmith's mom's friends is the wife of Dr. Edmonton. And her name is Alberta Edmonton. And it made me wonder <laughs> if in this small town in Maine where Franny grew up, if there's a Quebec, Ontario, or Vancouver, Prince Edward Island. <laughs> uh, a Victoria, Saskatchewan. <laughs> Toronto,
0: Ontario. It's like King's got a, a name dartboard and they're all just they're all just Canadian provinces. Calgary,
2: Newfoundland. <laughs> <laughs> I need a name.
0: Shit, I need a name. How about wonga wonga ronk ronk? <laughs> no, that, that's that's too... That's silly. Let me just put Albert Edmonton. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll change it later. There was a really cool line that I liked, and I, again, this is from Starkey. I, I suppose he's one of my favorite characters at this point. He thinks to himself, when a man has died, he wants you to know about it. I thought that was cool. Like In this particular instance, he's talking about the fact that A a decomposing body stinks and emits all sorts of things and you know there's no escaping the fact that somebody has died just by pure fact of the decomposition process but
2: like yeah yeah you know when someone dies you you can't just ignore it
0: yep
1: alright so this isn't a dark tower thinny but it's a neat little reference Stu is convinced he wasn't going to catch it capital I it Whatever it was. Oh. Maybe not a direct reference to it, but pretty close.
0: So, anytime anybody capitalizes the I in it, that, that's a yeah, potential it's, reference. Totally. So, like when, when it starts the, a sentence, it's like, oh, it's Stephen, Stephen King. Stephen King's referencing it.
1: <laughs> you know, he had to, have, like, maybe he wasn't thinking that the first time he wrote it, but when he was revising it, he must have thought, hey, somebody's going to notice this, right?
0: Yeah. I wonder if that, if he changed the capitalization in this edition. Yeah, that's a good question. We'll have to take a close look at that.
1: Yeah. So, Jay, two, two more fun stuffs. One is something that the sheriff says to Nick. The sheriff's starting to get sick, and so he needs to put Nick in charge. And the sheriff's wife is worried that Nick won't be able to handle the three men who are in the jail cells. And the sheriff says, don't worry. Those boys are more dildos than desperados. <laughs> I need to work that into my uh, daily daily conversation.
0: And and the, every time I see Desperado, I, I can't help but think a little bit of Stephen King's Desper. I'm sorry, Richard Bachman's Desperation. Ah, oh, there you go. Yeah,
2: of course. There's the alternate title, Dildo Desperation. <laughs> 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 uh, so we started
1: off early on talking about the fact that. Lloyd is threatened in losing one tooth Yep, uh, by, by one of the guards. Lloyd is worried about this. So as soon as he sees his lawyer, he says, I want you to count my teeth so that we know when this guy tries to take a tooth, what happened. And OK, but then a little bit later when Lloyd is back at the prison after talking to his lawyer. And again, this book does not have a lot of humor in it. It's a dark book, Jay. It's a very dark book. <laughs> when Lloyd runs into that guard again, he he tells him, like, hey, my lawyer counted every one of my teeth. 17. Jay, I'll remind you that with wisdom teeth, an adult
2: has 32 teeth. <laughs> <laughs> so he still has most of them? <laughs> He has more than 50%. It's true. <laughs> and I just love that. It.
1: It's almost like he's bragging about it. My lawyer counted every one of my teeth.
2: 17. <laughs> oh. I'm picturing Miguel Ferrer with 17 teeth. <laughs> it's really cracking me up.
1: <laughs> then try to imagine a young hotshot lawyer. Saying, open your mouth. Let me count your teeth.
2: Gap, gap, <laughs> gap. One, gap, gap, two, three. I don't know why this makes me—it's tickling my funny bones.
1: Uh, I don't think that the book is going to be as funny as that as we continue along.
0: So, but hopefully it will. Yeah, I hope. I'm. I'm sure we will find more moments of in, at least inappropriate humor. <laughs> uh, all right to buoy us along
1: before jay starts rolling on the floor crying with laughter that's going to end this episode of two guys to the dark tower came thanks jay thank you links to all of our social media is available in the show notes if you like the show please rate us on apple podcasts to support the show visit patreon.com slash two guys dark tower next episode join us as we cover the stand book one chapters 26 through 34 For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening.
0: It's like, screw this, guys.
2: I'm out of here.